Since 2009, SharesPost has been a leader in the secondary market for private company shares. With its network of 44,000 accredited investors and 150,000 members, SharesPost has transacted in more than 190 private companies. Whether you're an investor or a shareholder looking for liquidity, SharesPost has a solution for you. Visit us at SharesPost.com. Coming up on Equity, Dropbox prices its long-awaited IPO. There's a slew of other enterprise IPOs and a big acquisition. Facebook has a big privacy debacle, and Travis Kalanick is up to something new. Again. Welcome to Equity. I'm TechCrunch's Katie Roof, joined by my colleague Matthew Lindley. Hello. Crunchbase News Editor-in-Chief Alex Wilhelm is off today, but our special guest today is Darmesh Tacker, who's a general partner at Battery Ventures. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Katie. Thanks for having me here. Good to have you on on our one-year anniversary episode. We've Perfect. been doing this for a year. Can you believe that? Well, congratulations. Uh, I mean, clearly Alex is off tending his Slayer shirts again, so he's <laughs> missing out on our anniversary. But yeah. Alex is sick and I have a cold, so clearly we are burnt out on equity. But, uh, but this is a special week for Enterprise because... There's quite a bit happening. Dropbox is priced as IPO above the range after raising its range. So it's $21 a share. It values it at over $8 billion. That's still less than the $10 billion of its last private round. And a bunch of VCs will tell me that doesn't matter and I shouldn't care and I shouldn't even mention it. But it's it's a, it's a fact. Well, it is a stat, whether or not you care about it. I mean, if, <laughs> I mean, assuming everything goes to plan, I mean, so when these companies go public, they want like a 20%-ish pop, right? And so if you, I mean, depending on who you talk to, some people are like, no, we don't included the fully another de- very controversial <laughs> stat in the VC fully community. diluted versus non-diluted <laughs> da, 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 da. anyways th- that being said if it actually uh, goes the way that uh, these IPOs are typically like expected assuming all these guys are knocking on wood right now uh, it will be 10 billion right possibly yeah I mean yeah yeah if it, if it goes the way the bankers are pricing it you know by tomorrow by the time you're listening to this podcast maybe that will be a moot point all investors will be in the green then I mean, yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, and then the employees as well. So it's it's a key milestone, but um, we'll see how it performs in the coming weeks. You know, I've actually been, was pleasantly surprised by their financials. Uh, they had $1.1 billion in revenue. And we knew that they had a lot of revenue. I mean, that wasn't a secret. And we knew they were cash flow positive. But it definitely seemed like their, their revenue was growing fast and their losses were shrinking fast. So that combination is what the market loves. The stock market, they're... I don't want to say they're like simple minded when it comes to this stuff, but instead of looking at the long term vision, a lot of them, which some of them do, but a lot of stock investors are evaluating these things on a quarter by quarter basis or a year over year basis. And they're looking at top line and bottom line very carefully and um, not necessarily looking at the up and coming players in in the, the overall competitive landscape, although many stock investors do look at that stuff, but it's just not to the same degree that that venture investors do. So as far as what the stock market is looking for, I think that Dropbox has it. So I think that that it will do well. I could be wrong. I I agree, Katie. I agree with that. (laughs) I think uh, it's really hard to find companies that are growing well and have a path to profitability. If you look at the enterprise IPOs recently or any IPOs, they either have growth or a path to profitability. And Dropbox is one of the unique cases, perhaps like Atlassian, that has a path to both profitability and growth. And I think the underlying driver, which uh, perhaps investors don't appreciate, is their bottoms-up go-to-market model, right? So they have 500 million users, of which only 10 million are paying for that. Right? 11. 
And to to say five, yeah, yeah, eleven, 11 million. million. I mean, eleven close, million, <laughs> roughly ten. Yeah, eleven. Roughly two percent. But right. but yeah, 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 it's a very small percentage. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And there's five hundred million out of eight hundred million information workers worldwide, right? So they got massive mindshare of people who already believe their product is best in class. They use it to share their to to store their photos, their important files, what have you. And it's only a matter of time before that two percent converts to four or five percent, uh, which is going to drive a significant uptake in revenues, hopefully. But it does not come at the expense of sales and marketing costs because it's an organic growth path. Yeah, and one of the bigger questions here, though, is whether it is truly an enterprise company because um, you're right. Only eleven million out of those five hundred million registered users actually pay for the thing, and a lot of those users that do pay for it, actually, most of the users that pay for it are individuals who may be using it for business rather than companies. There is a sizable and growing ch- chunk of that revenue that's Dropbox for business and th- that is actually enterprise sales. But for the most part, it's people who just on their own decided, like, I want to use Dropbox and I will pay this even though I'm using it for work. So that's it's different than like a box for sure. We can look at this and say like, okay, does this have a path of property? path to profitability or did it miss its window to hit profitability um i think one thing that is interesting as we as, as we you know sort of head into this ipo is you know we when you look back at uh, uh it's, it's kind of weird to say this but when you look back at what's happening with ios it seems like apple is almost making it making users a little more comfortable to the notion of like moving files around and dealing with files like when you when you look at like what's happening what you can do with the ipad pro and things like that and dropbox at its heart is like a file sharing service, right? Or a file storage service. And they're going to say collaboration. We're going to, we're a big collaboration company. You know, we'll, we're there for people to sort of jump into Dropbox paper and they have all these other tools. But, you know, at the end of the day, like the core technology is like SmartSync, right? And like making sure that these things are readily accessible, really, really screaming fast, right? And easy to kind of share around. And so, I don't know. It's just, it's just interesting to me because it seems like there's like, there's still overhead for it to grow as as it's like core use case, right? Especially as it expands into these enterprises uh, more and more and more. Yeah, look, I, I agree with that, Matt. There's it's, it's never an easy path. But at the same time, remember, this is not a zero-sum game. Data is exploding every year. Are you taking photo, less photos this year than you did last year or the year before? I know for sure I'm not, right? I got 20,000 photos stored up on Dropbox. I'm too lazy to move them away for 100 bucks a year. And if anything, I'm only going to grow that, right? <laughs> and so whether you use it for photos in your personal life... But as or a you VC, you have more disposable income than your average person. But, well, but hopefully, anyway. hopefully $100 doesn't make a difference a year in most of our lifestyles. But uh, nonetheless, the utility is significant compared to the cost, which is why as data explodes, there's more and more data there's more and more reasons for the remaining 489 million users who don't pay for it to find a trigger point to pay $100 a year and perhaps pay more a year, right? Think about Netflix. I used to pay 8 bucks. Now I pay 13 bucks. I think. I don't even notice, right? And so most people might be willing to pay more, and more folks might be willing to pay for it because the relative value is significant compared to the, the cost associated with it. And I think what they've done beautifully is build this product that organically is used by a bunch of people because the user interface and the usability is so good. So whether it's content share, collaboration, it doesn't really matter. It's a, it's a well-designed product that is easy to use. And if the iPhone is any evidence, good design and simple products that we can use every day, have good penetration, which is you know what Dropbox has followed as well. I so, mean, that's what made it a, a big consumer use case originally, right? It's right. like, we're just like, we're online storage and put your stuff here and that's it. You don't have to worry about it. 
yeah. right? And that's what that's what made it popular originally. And now it's a sort of this question of being able to translate it to the enterprise, right? So I, the I mean the play is kind of the play is kind of you know we can uh, there's you know you can say like oh consumerization in the enterprise whatever you want to call it, but like Dropbox has this unique uh, position where it's kind of like always been consumer that just doesn't feel like it's like duct taping enterprise products on top of it, right? Whereas you can kind of get this feature creep with a lot of other companies. Yeah, I don't know. I care less. It's, it's a, it might sound like an oxymoron coming from me, but I don't care that much about the differentiation between consumer and enterprise. It is actually an easy product that is easy for people to try before they buy, right? So I think Dropbox is as consumer or enterprise as Atlassian Jira is, which is used by millions of developers. Uh, I think what makes them different is the fact that there's a new class of buyers, call it millennials, call it whatever you want, that would like to try things before they buy it, right? In our daily lives, we like to try you know, things before we commit to it long term. Think about Uber, think about Airbnb, think about Tinder. I can't relate to it, but <laughs> a lot of people use it. So, you know, there's this, there's this general, there's, <laughs> there's a general, there's a general proclivity towards trying things that are easy to try. And then when I commit to it, it's not a long term commitment and it makes the path to adoption really easy. That's what Atlassian did beautifully with Jira, which is why thousands, if not millions of developers and, and technology users adopted it. And I think that's what Dropbox has done. Now, they may use it in the enterprise for their day-to-day -day file sharing, or they may use it in their personal lives. So I think that distinction between enterprise and consumer seems a bit artificial. It's the bottoms-up growth that they have which I think they've done well. Sure, absolutely. I mean, there's been a lot of comparisons to Atlassian amongst the VCs I've talked to. Right. I mean, everyone is saying, you know, that they, it reminds them of them or they're hoping it will be like them because Atlassian has done pretty well in, yeah. in the stock market. But the reason there is that that focus on whether it's consumer or enterprise is because the stock market, when they're looking at multiples, they have little formulas that they like to plug in. And so it works differently than, it, than the way VCs evaluate these companies. And they really are caught up with these labels and figuring out what bucket to to group this into. But ultimately, I mean, it seems like um, at least the bankers are pretty optimistic about how the public will receive this. And it seems like Dropbox may have waited for the perfect moment where it will finally be valued at that that private market valuation. And um, yes, VCs, more specifically, they will tell you it doesn't matter because it definitely doesn't matter for the early employees and the investors, early investors. I mean, no matter what, they're making a ton of money off of this. This is a huge, huge, huge win for them. I mean, Sequoia owns almost a quarter of this company. <laughs> like, if it's a $10 billion company, that means they're getting almost $2.5 billion uh, once yeah, they like, sell their shares what if was, it remains at the same price or could go up. I mean, what was their last, more. sorry, what was their, what was their last hit, right? What's up? <laughs> no, so, they, they've had some other hits, for, but the, I mean, at this scale, I mean, yeah, it, there aren't very many just in general even out there in the in the world. So it's a huge win for Sequoia. Uh, it's also a win for Excel, which owns about 5% of the company. And then there's others like Greylock who own smaller percentages. But uh, this is, I mean, this is great news for any early investor. But, you know, when it gets, the reason that reporters focus on that that milestone, first of all, in the private markets, we don't get a lot of valuation information the way you do on the stock market where every day you know exactly how the company is doing. And so that data is relevant for the entire ecosystem of companies who are valued against other other comparable companies. And um, there's so many decisions made on a daily basis based on that competitive intelligence. And so so it's it's relevant. It's a relevant data point. And also it's, it's interesting to show that that, you know, some companies did get overvalued. You know, in this case, Dropbox's case, it looks like 
they were able to achieve that value. But many, many, many companies that are going public right now got overvalued, didn't um, didn't achieve that, and they're going public beneath that private valuation. That's that's relevant for investors. That's relevant for employees deciding to join companies. It's relevant for a lot of people when it comes down to it. Um, but yes, it, it's certainly a big milestone for the people who've been there since the beginning. And it's not the only milestone. There's been quite a few IPOs. There's another one that's also been in the works for a really long time. I broke the news that DocuSign filed for IPO. Uh, we don't know their financials yet because they filed confidentially, but people like me are making it not confidential. <laughs> um, but um, but that's, job, that's one I'm curious about because uh, they've been around for 15 years. Uh, that's the e-signature yeah. company. And then also there was Zscaler, which, you know, I broke as well because <laughs> I'm on the IPO beat here. But uh, Zscaler is, it did extremely well on their first day of trading. They more than doubled um, and they've done, um, let's see here, they, they're trading as of the recording of this podcast. They're at almost $30 a share and they um, priced their IPO at 16 So they have, have pretty much maintained that. Um, so that, that's, that's huge. That's a cloud security business. Um, and so, and that's that's a really good sign for investor appetite for tech IPOs. And you know, it, it sounds funny to loop all of the tech IPOs in the same category, but it's a thing that that investors of IPOs will watch. They will say, or at the very least, they'll look at it as a positive ind- indicator for all enterprise tech IPOs, even if all of these companies are different and have, and have very different stories. So, because um, there are set IPO buyers, they are people that go on these roadshows who... Um, decide on a regular basis whether or not to pick up IPOs. And um, it's just seen as an indication that people are buying tech IPOs right now. So it's a good sign for Dropbox. It's probably why they priced it where they did. I mean, part of why they priced it where they did. Um, And if Dropbox goes well, it's going to be a good sign for the next IPOs. Although we have Spotify coming up, which is a very different story and not exactly an IPO, but also maybe they'll recognize that it's a very different company because it's not enterprise. Uh, and then there's another enterprise company that starts with a Z. They're, uh, they're all D or Z right now. Uh, Zora, which is the uh, subscription billing business. Um, not super exciting, but um, it's a company that's going public. So that's I, a big I mean, win. it's the same as, like, if you look at Dropbox and Zora and DocuSign and Zscaler, they're like backbones, right? You build a business on top of this tool, and now you know now that like we have you know Dropbox first confidentially filed to go public, and then it filed to go public officially, and the numbers look pretty good, and then all of a sudden you know, not so surprising, you see this like wave of stuff starting to slip in, slip in, right? So it's like okay, well, you know, you if you're an investor and you're talking to your company, you say like okay, you can look at the Dropbox numbers, and these look pretty good, and so if we think that this is going to perform well, like that's at the very least it's not a direct comp, but we get a barometer. Right, just like Snap was a barometer for companies going public last year. Uh, obviously, they didn't go very well <laughs> for Blue Apron or Snap or any or any of those consumer companies, right? So Dropbox is kind of like it's sort of like, uh, is it a consumer, whatever, right? But you know, Zora is, uh, you know, you have like companies, you know, uh, you have, you have like a bunch of companies that are built on top of Zora because they have to have subscription billing and not only do they have to have subscription billing, they need like some kind of like way of measuring it. Right. Are people like users leaving? Do they stay? What's the turn like that kind of stuff? 
if you look at DocuSign, like everyone has to deal with documents, right? And there's a, you know, miles and miles and miles of legal red tape. And if it's just like, if I'm a smaller company, I'm like, please God, like let someone else deal with this because I don't have the freaking time to deal with this. Same with Zora, same with Dropbox, same with Zscaler, all these other things, right? So it's like, you know, it's sort of like, okay, like, you know, maybe we shouldn't bucket them all together, but we kind of should because they are at their hearts, just stuff that, you know, was spawned in the late 2000s that, created this whole class of businesses and now it's like finally finally a decade later we're seeing this stuff actually go public right yeah i think what what makes all these companies uh interesting and i think the common uh element across all of them is the size of the markets they operate in and also the stickiness of the customer base so you're right katie enterprise is boring but hopefully important for a lot of people (laughs) right so i mean we talk about enterprise all the time and i pick it so i guess i don't think it's that boring no it's great somebody's (laughs) got to do it because every time you do a google search or you look for a photo on facebook there's somebody in the back end on a server serving up that image and the search results so it's important but it's invisible and behind the covers and frankly the audience that deals with it prefers stability the cio who buys a server or buys a search platform or buys uh, a security product doesn't want to go switch it out every year and so as a result of that it ends up being really sticky uh, and over time you can upsell them further right so if you look at zscaler it's a very different revenue profile than dropbox dropbox is at 1.1 billion and they're considering trading at seven to eight times zscaler is 125 million revenues 167 million arr from the last time i checked and it's trading at about 20 times that right oh, absolutely. so and i think the result of that is because these markets are massive right so while in the case of dropbox when we look at this and say how big can uh, data storage B. In the case of security, it's a $90 billion market that's growing by 20, 30% a year in this larger market of $2 trillion in IT, right? And that IT spend is completely being disrupted because over the last 10 years, we kind of had these three macro trends that are coming in play at the same time. You got this migration from data center to cloud. That's a $300 billion migration, right? You got this migration from PCs to mobile to IoT and sensors. There's 50 billion of them in the next 10 years, right? And then you got data, which is proliferating everywhere. Put all these things together, it's a giant freaking mess. And somebody's got to make sense out of that mess. And Zscaler makes you secure while you're making sense out of the mess. And Zora lets you build while you're making sense out of that mess. So it ends up being large markets. They end up being sticky. It's hard to break in because the upfront sales uh, process is cumbersome. But once you're in, they tend to stick. The churn ends up being pretty low relative to consumer businesses that may churn at 30-40%. And the lifetime value of these customers end up being significantly larger. As a result of which, you see Zscaler and others trading at a much higher multiple than you might see some of the consumer IPOs. Yeah, I mean, yeah. If, like, it's a, I guess it's, it's probably not a great analogy, but like, if you look at, you know, if you look at your iPhone, like you get in the iPhone and it is really freaking hard to get that out of you, like get that yeah. designed out of the That's iPhone, right. right? Same with like, same with any phone, same with a lot of hardware. Like once you've gotten your product inside of it, and it's, you know, in the hands of like, you know, hundreds of millions of people, it's really hard to design that out because people look at, get accustomed to the results of that hardware. I mean, Apple's probably not a good example because they rip stuff out of their phones all the time, right? But it's just, it's one of those things where the lock-in is so insanely high, right? I mean, I, th- I feel like we, uh, we, t- we, we were talking about Spotify uh, a couple weeks ago, right? And again, like the retention was like crazy, right? Because they had created this crazy, not this crazy, they had created this ecosystem where essentially everyone started using Spotify and it was just a pain in the ass to switch to Pandora or Apple Music or those other things, right? And so, yeah, like I have to pay for Spotify and like Apple Music is probably easier to get on my phone. But as a result, it's like, it's almost 
I mean, it's a great product, but it's almost like too hard to get off that product because then I have to move all of my playlists and I have to move yeah. all of my connections and I have to do all of this stuff, right? It's yeah. consumer and enterprise, but it's just like enterprise is like a hundred times harder to pull out of yeah, your right. pull out of your your backbone. The cost right? of switching is too high. Right? Yeah, switching. Yeah. I mean, it's like open heart surgery. Who wants to go do that unless you absolutely have to, right? And so that's why that's what makes it sticky. And so I think Katie, you mentioning earlier, all the VCs and investors are kind of looking at all these funny metrics. I think the two metrics that make a business enterprise-y, and I would say Dropbox is in that category, uh, is the the upfront sales efficiency, the amount of money you have to spend to get that first dollar of business, and second is a lifetime value to customer acquisition costs. So the lesser dollars you have to spend to get the customer upfront, and the more money you can make from that customer because they're locked in, right? the more efficient your business is, and Wall Street appreciates that visibility. If I can tell you now what the next five, seven years of top line is going to be, with reasonable certainty because I can lock these customers in and sell them more over time. Investors like that versus in the case of Blue Apron or Snapchat or perhaps Spotify, you might be looking to switch all the time because consumers are fickle. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I've made that point a bunch of times in this podcast. I mean, with enterprise, there's better customer retention, generally speaking, usually way better customer retention. And that that really helps um, public investors love predictability to businesses. However, um, while they tend to be safer bets overall, uh, they don't necessarily shoot for the moon the way that some consumer companies do. So while you have giant companies like Facebook, there haven't been very many at all um, gigantic enterprise companies. That said, they do. They, there are some, including Salesforce, which bought MealSoft, a, a recent enterprise right. IPO, for six point five billion dollars this week. You know, pretty good for it's just being one year on the stock yeah. market. Uh, we've talked about MealSoft before, actually. Yeah. At the time of the IPO, I quoted you in my story. You didn't invest in them, but I wish, you wish had, you did. Yeah. Right. So, uh, why, why right? did you miss about MealSoft? I mean, what what do you? I was like not about in the venture MealSoft? business. Uh, okay. when they came well, that, that's a really valid excuse. That's a decent reason. But, yeah. um, Sorry, but, just seeing this. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, so what do you think that MealSoft um, is doing right? And, and, and explain it to our listeners who might not know what it is. Yeah, I think, look, we hear about these terms like cloud and digital transformation all the time. The net, the net benefit of that is we want to accelerate the pace of innovation, which means developers want to write software faster, and they want to make it interoperate with the existing applications that they have, right? So Salesforce is helping sales guys get a lot more productive, right? But at the same time, if you want to tie it back to the 20, 30 years worth of applications that have been written by some of the largest companies, who's going to bridge the gap between the innovation over the last 30 years to the innovation of the next 30 years? Salesforce is on the path to the next 30 years. MuleSoft provides a bridge to the last 30 years. And you combine those two together, I think is a very uh, defensible mode that can help them create the platform for enterprise application innovation. So, so I think it's a strategic move by Salesforce. So future-proofing, basically. Yeah, I mean, accelerating innovation of the past and future-proofing their own business. Do you think Salesforce is going to buy more companies like this? Well, there was rumor on the street that they're trying to make a, 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 um, a stab at LinkedIn, but they didn't work out. Right. Uh, Not just a rumor. Sources told TechCrunch. There you go. <laughs> also, <laughs> also going after the the single largest customer acquisition or customer service channel on the planet. Customer acquisition would have been LinkedIn. Yeah, customer they also service wanted channel. to buy Twitter, too. Yeah, yeah the place where you can compl- yeah. complain to United about uh, how small the seats are, basically. Yeah, what's what's <laughs> amazing is, you know, this, this, in, this revolution in technology has been led by a handful of companies. If you look at, you know, the dot-com era, there were, there were probably you know a couple dozen companies versus now. There's five or six companies that are getting bigger and bigger. Why acquisitions? Why user growth? So whether it's Facebook or Google on the consumer side or Salesforce and and others on the enterprise side, VMware, Dell, EMC, there's certainly a, 
uh, a preference for companies getting larger by buying it out. And I think capital's cheap as well. If you look at the markets around us, it's pretty easy for companies to raise capital at rates that were much lower than historic re- rates. And they can use that to go make acquisitions and grow their top line. I mean, Salesforce is, uh, from what I recall, they're paying for uh, the MuleSoft acquisition with almost $3 billion in debt which I'm sure is much cheaper now than it would have been five years ago. I mean, that's the thing that Apple's traditionally done too, right? Is they're able to do uh, like stock buybacks and dividends and things like that right. and potentially M&A through debt just because it's easy. Plus and the money was overseas. Yeah, well, that too. Well, not, I mean, right. not anymore, right? Not, right. Or, or soon right. not anymore. So maybe they'll buy Salesforce. Uh, actually, that's a terrible <laughs> idea. Uh, don't do that. <laughs> or Netflix. Or Netflix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like the, uh, that, that narrative kind of got yeah. kind of uh, got shut down after it hit like $110 billion market cap. But, right. Yeah. But so I know you're an enterprise guy, but there was some really, really big news this week that wasn't enterprise. Not that um, big. <laughs> uh, Facebook. Well, we can talk about whether it's big or not, but Facebook, uh, there was there was some controversy there. There's an organization called Cambridge Analytica, which uh, gathers uh, data about people uh, to change change culture or whatever. This guy who the, there's a whistleblower or what he, who who came forward who worked at Cambridge Analytica who says that he uh, was working for this organization that was designed to help Republicans win the White House in 2016. Um, And he said they one of the tricks they had up their sleeves or the main trick they had up their sleeve was that by using an app that was was an older app on Facebook uh, that allowed for people it basically it allowed for them to view information about not only the users of the app, but also all of those users' friends. And so basically, even if you didn't download the app, if you were friends with someone that downloaded the app, somehow they they were a- say they were able to get about 50 million people's data, even though there were only a few hundred thousand people on the app, but maybe it was friends of friends. I don't know, somehow, whatever it was, it opened up the gateways and they were able to get data on a lot of people. And this was like, you know, things that they publicly displayed to their friends, like things they liked or whatever. But in some cases, apparently it was even private messages is what the, is what they're claiming. And um, so obviously this, this freaked out a lot of people. They're like, what are people, what do people know about me? And and um, I guess well, they were able to use this information to send content that they thought would persuade them to change their mind on political issues because they had so much information on what what kinds of th- content they responded to. From so, what I understand, they helped out the Trump campaign as well. This form Cambridge Analytica. Yes, is that absolutely. Right? Yes, that was exactly two and two what, together. It's yes. not that hard to understand. Okay. So, so there's two things that stood out to me about this whole thing. I mean, aside from the whole, you know wild breach of trust for 50 million people's information uh, being used for the purposes of, you know, political campaigns and things like that. Aside from that being like, aside from that, Facebook was was formerly like a $500 billion company. Now, normally when you look at what's happening in the stock market, like these, they tend to be like relatively stable or decline over time. And the big sharp stuff happens when there's like someone gives a downgrade or there's like some analyst note that comes out or like a, a headline goes out that they're being, MuleSoft's being acquired by Salesforce or earnings reports, something like that. Uh, after the Cambridge Analytica story came out, Facebook is down like 10%, yeah, right? Yeah. In absence of any of that stuff happening. And also yesterday, Facebook's board of directors came out to defend Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg. Those are two things that sort of tell me that people are really freaked out about this, right? Yeah. 
like more so i mean and again this was all this was done when facebook's policies were like not very well defined and or maybe they were defined but they just weren't the guardrails weren't exactly in place and this is like as i mean i know this is a really really classic silicon valley problem where you just you have so much other stuff on your plate that you don't even think about this stuff you know future-proof your products and in a way that something like this ends up happening but this is like this seems like a moment right yeah, isn't it troubling, Matt, that you know Facebook can share your data in ways that you may not be aware of and just apologize after the fact? Equifax can lose all your data. They may come and hack you. <laughs> One fine day, you see 100,000 you know, moving from your account. But I mean, you know, you, you got to balance out revenue with responsibility, right? I think the, the vision of the internet, and I might sound old doing this, I started my career back in 2000 when the internet was just starting out. The vision was to have this, this decentralized peer-to-peer network where if you were creating content and somebody else was consuming content, no central party had the authority to control what you saw and what you produced, right? And yet, 15, 18 years later, we're sitting here where everything that you view about politics, about fashion, your friends, is influenced by what Facebook says, by what Google says, by what you know Amazon says, what Apple says. It plays such an important role in our life, completely uh, influencing our vision that they have to balance that with the responsibility of managing our data, right? How would you feel if at the end of the month, your credit card just told you, hey, look, you spent $10,000, but I can't tell you how it was spent, right? The same way, like Facebook's using my data in multiple ways I have no idea about. They have the responsibility of telling us how that data is being used. Is it being used for the right reasons? What the implications of this are? As opposed to saying, hey, we should have done a better job at it. Like, I don't think that's enough. And, and, also, and Zuckerberg came out with a very lengthy response. And like he four did days it, after yes, the fact. Yes, <laughs> several days late. Um, he didn't actually technically apologize, although he did say that this loophole was resolved in 2014. And while that was several years ago... Facebook wasn't a young company. Facebook's been around since 2004. So it took them 10 years to... 14. To, well, 10 years that they fixed this. They fixed right. this apparently four years ago. So um, to... to prevent this kind of loophole and they said that they had that Cambridge Analytica had denied well that, that actually that the app that had used the data that denied sh- sharing it with with Cambridge Analytica and so basically they they view it as a breach of, of trust in that sense but we were um, wrong <laughs> but this isn't like this isn't like oh like we were wrong back in 2007 before people became really concerned about privacy or whatever. This is like after Facebook was a 10-year-old company. <laughs> it was a bleeping public been, company. <laughs> yeah, it had been a public for a couple years before they fixed this glaring, glaring privacy situation. And so even though it's kind of like, yes, they already did fix it several years ago, uh, at that point, I think it just was so out of control where so many people had probably exploited the data loopholes for years that I don't think it's really possible at this point for them to get their hands on anyone and everyone who might have data like this. And so yeah. even if you delete Facebook, I mean, which a lot of people are doing now, hashtag delete Facebook. Um, have you, Katie? No, okay. but um, <laughs> I'm way too dependent on Facebook. I'm just going to be real. Speaking I don't of approve. things you can't get exactly. yeah, no, I, I don't approve of what they did, but I yeah. like, first of all, Facebook connects to like every single login I ever do. I mean, there's a lot. So, I mean, but I mean, look, and, and you, we, can't, we can't deny the fact that like Zuckerberg's one of the best entrepreneurs of our time, right? He's yeah. done an incredible job bringing information to you that makes your life easy 
makes you connected. Heck, I'm connected to all my family 10,000 miles away on Facebook. So it's great. Right. There's a lot of goodness. But let's not also forget the fact that they're worth half a trillion dollars by selling your and my attention span to people that we may or may not like. Right. Every single day when I see I don't know how much time you spend, but a few minutes a day, whatever time I'm on online, when I'm on Facebook, they're selling my attention span to people that are trying to advertise me products that I have no interest of buying. And if anything, it's irritating. Right. So at the very least, I ought to have control. Ads are a little too targeted, frankly, like I'm kind of a little creeped out. Um, So. So, I mean, yeah, clearly, I mean, that was obvious. I already knew that they were targeting me based on what I've been seeing. You know, I already knew they knew a lot about me. but I just think that while everyone knew that like Facebook was kind of using your data, I just think that to the extent that it was being used, and I think per- particularly when it's an app that you didn't give permissions for is what freaked people out. Sure. Yeah. I think if you know yeah. that if you're giving app permissions, exactly like some right. people are more paranoid about privacy you should than be others. control of your destiny online. I'm less online. paranoid, paranoid right. than I should be, and I have like various apps on there. But... Although at one point I did revoke access to a lot of them several years ago, but um, but you know I didn't, but I didn't realize when I'm permitting these apps that I'm also permitting them to look at my friends. I mean that's that's not okay, um, because why should I have consent? over my friend's privacy. Some people are more private people than others and don't want information yeah. about that. It's kind of the same there. way. When you when you apply for a loan or whatever other financial activity you do, you have control over who can pull your credit and when, right? Is it that hard to have control over who your personal data is being used for targeting purposes? Mm-hmm. Is it that hard to say, well, these are the 50 companies that have used your data for targeting you, and do you want them to continue doing that or not, right? I think having control over your destiny online is a fair ask. Do we want to do an over under on who else? How many other people have done this? <laughs> like, it's the Wild West here. yeah. I mean, it's just. It, I mean, if you look, if you look all the way back to like Farmville, right, and Zynga, they were doing. They were had this setup where you was. They had engineered virality out of being really annoying, right? And Facebook was like, "Oh crap! Like this is really annoying, and people don't like it. Let's let's sort of pare this down." And that was the very. That was the end of the very very short lived social gaming revolution. Um, you know, may it rest in peace. Um. But I mean, there's like, it's 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 probably really impressive the amount of dark design that went into some of these applications that was for the sole purposes of essentially getting your information, right? Yeah. So it's just, uh, I don't know. I'll take the over on whoever wants to put a bet on the companies that have that have your that have taken taken that data and and uh, not not properly telegraphed uh, to their users that are sort of clicking the login button with uh, without like proper yeah uh, look you, you got to always keep this you know you got to keep the holistic picture in mind here there's a lot of goodness in our everyday life that comes from google helping you find content quickly from facebook from amazon uh, from for a number of these online services but they just have to balance the benefit they provide you with the responsibility they have to manage your data appropriately yeah who would have thought the whole democratization of information in a single feed could have ever gone poorly yeah, it's it's funny you had this tick, you know, this this uh, this cycle that keeps coming back. You know, back in the in the dot com era, you had these wall gardens of AOL and Verizon, and they cracked down. We had the free internet, and now we again have these wall gardens of Google, Amazon, Facebook, and Apple. Uh, and again, I think they they just they they have some responsibility along with that. So one more thing we wanted to talk about: our favorite guy that we always talk about this Travis weekend, Kalanick. not Uber. <laughs> Travis Kalanick has a new job. I mean, we talked about his other new job recently because he was doing venture capital. But no, now he 
basically bought a company. You bought buildings. You, okay. <laughs> you, you tell us about what happened here. <laughs> uh, so really quickly, uh, Travis Kalanick is a private equity investor. Um, so uh, just really, really fast. He spent, Essentially. Yeah, essentially. He uh, he bought a controlling stake in this company called City Storage Systems, or CSS, which is buildings, um, old buildings that need to be repurposed. And uh, there are two quick things that are to note there, which is has two businesses called Cloud Kitchens and Cloud Retail, right? Um, and... I said, what it is is focusing on redevelopment of distressed assets in those two areas, kitchen and retail. So, the one interesting thing that kind of stood out to me about this, which is wildly less interesting than Cambridge Analytica and these other things, is that Uber's sort of hallmark was that it was this decentralization of activity, right? So, um, instead of going to a underground hub like a subway or going to a taxi stand or doing whatever, that stuff's going to come to me, right? And if you look at what's happening with the uh, food delivery, I mean, there's a whole graveyard of companies like Sprig and the rest of these things where the it was essentially born from this movement to get out of, you know, bring food to me, but they still had to start somewhere, right? Now, imagine if you have like little kitchens and all over the city and you have, a, you have an operation like Sprig, which essentially closes the distance physically from the actual consumer to the kitchen. That does kind of make sense, but also it's Travis Kalanick running the company, so who knows how this is going to go. So, I don't know. <laughs> All right. Well, that's it for this week in Uber and enterprise IPOs and Facebook Facebook taking over the world in a bad way. But um, thanks for tuning in. Come back next week. And thanks for listening for our one-year anniversary. Yay! All right, everyone. We want to say a special thanks to our producer, TechCrunch's own Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickavet. Thank you to Katie Roof. Thank you to Matthew Lindley. And thank you to you for leaving us that five-star iTunes review. That's Equity. We'll see you all next Friday. Hey.